Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. in a series as we have uh, just kind of lost in the new year, hopefully challenging us about doing more ourselves for Christ in this year. Uh, the full title of the message is, Will You Let God uh, Use You to Change Your World? And what we've been doing each week is kind of focusing on some missionaries that have gone before us and things that they have done. Uh, and that's what we'll continue to do today. We'll be in Psalm 96 in a few moments, and uh, I'm just going to read it as we walk through. I'm not going to read it right now, but if you want to find yourself in Psalm 96, that's where we'll be. How many of you have heard of Jim Elliott before, missionary Jim Elliott? Raise your hand if you've heard of him before. Uh, wow, I thought more would have heard of Jim Elliott. How many have heard of Elizabeth Elliott? Uh, she used to have her own uh, radio program and things like that. Uh, and you might have heard this story once I get into it. It might have uh, might kind of ring a bell in your mind, and you remember some things uh, about hearing uh, their story. But uh, that's what we're going to look at. Uh, he had a desire that the nations would glorify God, that the nations would come to faith in Christ and, and would glorify uh, the Lord. That was his desire. That was the intent uh, of his life. Uh, I'll tell uh, parts of his story through the message, kind of to begin with, just to let you know uh, some basic things about him. Uh, he, along with four other missionaries, Jim Elliott, along with Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, Roger Uteran, and uh, Ed McCauley, they felt led to go to a place called Ecuador. They felt called to go to a tribe that was known as being a, a dangerous tribe to start with. The tribe had already killed some people. I'll say more about that in a moment uh, also. They, they go there to share the gospel with them. And it eventually leads to all five of these missionaries being speared to death, being murdered as they're there in the jungle trying to share Christ with this tribe um, in Ecuador. When you'll hear the rest of their story, maybe even just from hearing that much of, of their story, it, it might make you ask yourself this question, what am I doing for Jesus? Uh, the, the rest of the story, and we'll get in more details about it later, but even after they were murdered by about 10 of these tribesmen, some of their family went back to try and reach that tribe, the very ones that murdered their family members. And I kind of challenged by that, and I asked myself, if somebody had murdered my family member, would I have gone to that much difficulty trying to reach them for Christ, or would I be willing just to write them off? Once, once again, we need to ask ourselves, in light of this story, and all the other stories we're hearing in this series, Really, what have I done? What will I do? What will you do for Christ? And that's kind of the intent of, of, of these stories. He, he wanted the nations, as I said a moment ago, to give glory to God. Depend on your Bible. Some Bibles in Psalm 96 have a heading that says, Worship in the Splendor of Holiness. And guys, that's God's desire. God desires to be worshipped in the Spirit of Holiness. By the way, he desires more than just people in America to worship him. He desires more than just people in this church to get together on Sunday and sing and worship him. He desires for all peoples everywhere to worship him. And that was the conviction of Jim Elliott and these other missionaries. So in order for that to happen, guys, I think there has to be something that I'm going to refer to as a move of God. A type of move of God that involves three things. And this is kind of like an aside message for a moment. I'll get back to the main topic in a minute. But this is the move of God that Jim Elliott and these other missionaries experienced. And it needs to be what we experience in our own lives. All of us as Christians. First thing we need to do is look in. And if we're honest, when we look inside, we won't like what we'll see. Because we'll see our sinfulness, especially in contrast to God's holiness, 
And once we look in and we're honest about who we are and the problems we have, we need to look up. And when we look up, we're looking to God. We're looking to God in all of his majesty. You'll hear phrases about how majestic, splendorous God is in Psalm 96 today. But we need to look up to him because we recognize the solution of what we see in here. The solution isn't in here. The solution is with God. And that's why we need to look to him and, and, and trust in Christ. But after we do that, the story's not over. We need to look in, look up, but then we need to look out. Because there are people all around us that do not know Christ as Savior. There are people all around us, all across the world, nations across the world, people involved in the worship of idols and different things like that, all across the world that do not know Christ. So a move of God that we need in our midst and every church needs in their midst is for everybody to look inside, look up, and then look out. And be motivated as we look out to try and reach those people that do not know Christ as their Savior. He experienced, Jim Elliott experienced that kind of move in his life. He once prayed this. He prayed, oh, that God would make us dangerous. You ever heard a prayer like that? For, For God to make us, to make him and those missionaries dangerous. They were going to where there was a dangerous tribe. But he's praying that they would be made dangerous. Guys, we live in a dangerous world. We live in a dangerous culture. But we ourselves, we need to pray that. We need to pray that God will make us dangerous. Dangerous to the anti-cultural, anti-God culture that exists in our world. We need to pray that God makes us so dangerous that Satan gets concerned about us. Jesus said the gates of hell would not be able to withstand his church. Now, I've preached this before. I hadn't even planned on saying it today. It's not in my notes. I said it in the first service because evidently God wanted me to say it. Gate is a defensive weapon. We as a church are supposed to be on the offense. Hell is supposed to be on the defense. That's why we need to pray that we're dangerous to Satan. We're dangerous to his agenda and we're dangerous to his, his kingdom. In Psalm 96, there are four major, I'm going to call them movements. And we're going to look at each one and see how that ought to apply to our lives and, and hopefully be challenged by the, by the ministry of Jim Elliott and these other missionaries. Here's movement number one, verse 1 through 3 of Psalm 96. And there, I think the main topic is this. God desires the nations to praise him. As I said a moment ago, not just us, but the nations. He desires the nations to praise him. The Bible says there in verse 1 through 3, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. God's praising God involves multiple actions. Some people think praising God is just when they're singing and just when they throw their hands in the air or something like that. But the Bible tells us it involves more than that. Oh, it does involve singing, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But I think it also involves sharing, and also we're going to talk about that in a moment, where we will will share with others. We ought to praise God through singing. That's what it said in verse number 1 and 2. We're told three times in those two verses that we're to sing. And we're told in the Hebrew, you've heard me use this before in the, uh, in, in the Greek, but I, I don't know if I've ever noticed this before in the Hebrew until I was studying for this message about a week and a half ago. Every time the word sing is used here in the Hebrew, it's used in the imperative tense. The imperative tense means what it implies. It means God is saying, that's what I want you to do. God's not making a suggestion. God's not saying, we'll do this if you kind of think you want to. God God is commanding us that we're to do this, that we are to to sing in the imperative tense. Notice what kind of song it is in those verses. The the song is a new song. It's a new song. It's, It's a song of salvation, I think, that's being referred to. It's a song of good news. It's a song for all the earth, not just for us, not just for Americans, but for all the earth, all peoples of the earth. It's a song that blesses God's name for what he has done. 
We're, we're blessing his name. We're telling of his salvation from day to day. It's a new song that appears again in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. And the Bible says there in Revelation chapter 5, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, talking about the Lamb of God, to take the scroll and to open his seals. For you were slain, and by your blood, look what Jesus did by his blood. By your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, people, and nation. That's the song that we're to sing about. It's a song of salvation. It's a new song. It's a song of redemption. It's a song of, of Christ coming into this world and paying the price for our sins so that people of the world can have hope. But we shouldn't just praise God through singing. We ought to praise God through sharing. Because there are three additional imperatives in those verses. In other words, there's three commandments. Not three things that are optional, but three commandments. The first one is this. Bless his name. The way we literally just in our hearts and in our minds, maybe even with our bodies, we, we, we kneel as an act of adoration to God. The second imperative is this, tell of his salvation from day to day. And that word phrase there means this. It means to be, to be fresh, to be full, to the point that we are announcing good news. You and I ought to walk around so full of the gospel that we can't really help that it gets out of our lives. That we can't help but sing this new song and share this new song about salvation with others. The third imperative there is to declare, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. The, the word means to, to, to score with a mark or, or to do a tally. It's like an accounting term. And, and as I was thinking about that, I got this picture in, in my mind. It's, 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 like you, it's like you're taking a notebook and you're, you're marking down, you're writing down all that God has done for you. You're making a tally, and, and especially what he's done for you in Christ. And then you do this. You take it to somebody else and say, hey, look here. <laughs> look what God's done for me. Look how he saved me. Look how he did this. Look what he's done this in my life. And, and guys, that's an imperative for us to, to have that kind of tallied up in our spirit to where we're willing to, to share with, with other people. We're to tell people, share, and sing about the good news. You might could take those word studies right there and say that we're to so adore God that we're so spiritually fresh and full of the good news. We must announce it. We must declare, recount, inscribe, enumerate, celebrate the record of God's glorious works. And we're to bless his name by telling of his salvation from day to day among all people. Now, in the day that that was written, the reference is kindly this. The psalmist is saying, Let's look back through the history of Israel and let's see everything that God has done for us. But guys, for us, it has this application. Let's not look just through what God did through the Bible with Israel. Let's look what God has done in sending his son. Let's look how God has redeemed us as he sent his son. And it looks not just there, but even future tense to be with Christ for all eternity. And we need to be willing to recount that, to think about it, to share it from day to day. It's like we're given a, a history lesson of all that God has done for us. But in a practical way, I think for us it means this. We're to share his gospel from one day to the next, from one moment to the next. We're to be telling about Jesus today, tomorrow. You might could say it like this. It probably means this for us. There shouldn't be a day that goes by that you and I as believers don't think and have upon our heart and upon our lips the gospel of Christ and all that he has done for us to where we're willing to, to declare it to others. We need to be inspired by stories like Jim Elliott and how he served Christ in our own hearts and our own lives and be challenged but his life. He was born in Portland, Oregon in 1926. His father was kind of an itinerant evangelist, but his father had no formal training, theological training whatsoever. And yet Jim Elliott said of his own father that his theology, that his doctrine was so strong, nobody can knock it down. 
So even without being to seminary or anything like that, his dad knew what he believed and stood upon what he believed. Missionaries would often visit the childhood home of Jim Elliott. At eight years old, Jim Elliott came to trust Christ the Savior. As a teenager, he was already feeling the call to be a missionary. He was a really, really good athlete. Because here's the reason why he wanted to be a good athlete. He wasn't a good athlete, so people would look at him in high school and college and say, my goodness, look what a great athlete Jim Elliott was. That wasn't his purpose. Here was why he was involved in athletics. Because he knew it would prepare his body for the rigors of being on the mission field. Isn't that something else? He didn't care about the accolades of the crowd or what they may think of him as an athlete. He was using that as a pathway to prepare his body to be able to go on the, on the mission field. He enrolled in Wheaton College in 1948. If you've ever heard of Wheaton College before, it might be for this reason. That's where Billy Graham went to college. And many others have been influenced and went to college. He joined the wrestling team. He began speaking to youth groups. He started journaling in his junior year. And also he met this woman by the name of Elizabeth that would become his wife. In June of 1950, his desire to see the nations give glory to God drew his heart to a remote and fear tribe in Ecuador known in that day as the Aka. Sometimes they're called different names today. He wrote these words to his parents on August 8th, 1950. Listen to what Jim Elliott wrote. So what if the church in the homeland, talking about America, needs stirring? They have the scriptures, Moses, and the prophets. You ever heard that phrase before? You remember when the rich man and the rich man in Lazarus' story and the rich man was begging that Abraham would send someone to speak to his brothers. And Abraham said the exact same thing. (laughs) They've got Moses, they've got the scriptures, they've got the prophets. Well, he said that about America. And he said, we've got so much more than that. Then listen to what Jim Elliott said. Their condemnation is written on their bank books. Do you understand what he's saying? I had the chance years ago to go to some special training that Calvary Baptist Church and Dr. Mark Quartz was putting on Winston-Salem. And I can remember to this day when Mark Quartz said this, when Dr. Quartz said this one day in class. It, it was a thing that they brought in pastors once a month for a year and then six times in the next year just to give them some practical training. Here's what Mark Quartz said. He said, give me your bank book and I'll tell you how right with God you are. That hurts a little bit, doesn't it? In other words, how you spend your money? Well, let me know how right with God you are. So he, he said their condemnation is in their bank books and in the dust on their Bibles. American believers have sold their lives to the service of mammon, a theological, biblical word for money. And God has his rightful way of dealing with those who succumb to the spirit of Laodicea. He's talking about all Americans in that day, in the 50s. What would he write today? On July 26, 1952, he wrote in his journal, Oh, for a faith that sings. Lord God, give me a faith that will take sufficient quiver out of me so I may sing. He's saying, God, take my fear away. So that over the Alcas, this tribe that we're talking about, he could sing. He wanted to sing over them. He wanted to see them come to faith in Christ. He had a new song of salvation for the Alcas. Second movement in Psalm 96 is verse 4 through 6. In verse 4 through 6, more or less these verses are saying that God desires the nations to fear or reverence Him. The Bible says, Therefore great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heaven, splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. I read where someone said this recently, that a correct understanding of who God is will give a person a healthy, a healthy fear or reverence of God. Listen to the rest of it. The person who clearly understands who God is doesn't speak of him as a man upstairs or doesn't say, J.C.'s my homeboy. That escapes the, a little bit the holiness of God. 
In those verses, verse 4 through 6, let me break out some things for you. We're told, first of all, God is great. It said, for God is great. For, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Great in any sense is the self-existent God, is what he's saying. So much so that when you look at that in the Hebrew, it means this. We should quickly, vehemently, wholly, clearly shine and boast and brag, foolishly rave about this great God. You might could just say it like this. The great God deserves great praise. Does that not sound logical? Not only is God great, God is real. Because he also wrote these words. The psalmist said, God is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. The word that he uses there in the Hebrew for idols means this, good for nothing. (laughs) Why, Why invest your life in chasing after an idol when it's good for nothing? And as someone's pushing back and saying, well, preacher, we don't do that anymore. We don't have any little golden or metal or wooden images that we bow down to in our homes. Well, no, you may not have that. But if you have anything that's taken the place of Christ in your life, that's an idol. And, and he tells us more or less by him saying that idols are worthless. The main point he's making is that God is real. And because God is real, God is to be feared. God is to have reverence. He's to be held in awe because he's real. He he said all the other gods are idols. They're worthless. They can't do anything because they're not real. See, there's no reason for us to fear them because they don't exist. They've never existed. There's no reason to fear them whatsoever. And yet, guys, the people all around the world are enslaved to idols and false systems of religion. Now, this might sound harsh, but I want you to get this. A false system of religion is simply this. It's an expressway to hell because that's where it takes people. That's where they'll wind up if if they're tied to a false system of religion. God is great. False gods aren't great. God eternally saves. False gods eternally damn people to hell. You'll never give an account, guys. Listen to this. You will never, ever stand and give an account to an idol. But the Bible says we'll all have to give an account to God. Because God is real. He's the powerful, living God. And the nations or peoples of the world who haven't trusted in Christ, who worship false gods, guys, whether we like this thought or not, there's coming a day of judgment and a day of eternal separation for people who have rejected God and Christ as their Savior. God is real. We're told God is great. We're told that God is a creator. But the Lord made the heavens is what the psalmist wrote. Idols where they're good for nothing, they've never made anything because they can't make anything. But God made it all. That's why our focus needs to be upon him. We're also told that God is glorious. We're told that splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. You can kind of boil down all those word studies and still be taking time to go through those word studies and simply kindly say this about God being glorious. Guys, you need to move ahead to the next slide, please about God being glorious. And, and, and that is, all those things say that. God has splendor. God has majesty. It's all right before him, before his face. He's the only one that has true strength. There's beauty and, and there's strength in his, in his sanctuary, in his holy place. You could roll all that together and just say God is glorious and the peoples of the world need to know that God is glorious. Elizabeth Elliot said this of her husband. Jim's aim was to know God. What are you aiming for in your life? Jim Elliott said this of himself. He said, Lord, make my way prosperous, not that I achieve a high station, in other words, a high status in life, but that my life may be an exhibit to the value of knowing God. Now, he's not saying with the health and wealth crowd, God, give me a million dollars, God, give me a mansion, multiple mansions. God, give me a Mercedes or a Cadillac to drive or anything like that. That's not his motive. He's saying, God, make me prosperous just so other people will set up and take notice of the value of knowing you. That was his purpose. He even prayed this one night as he was spending some time in prayer. He made a covenant between him and God as far as the way he viewed it. And he said that he prayed this, He told God, either glorify himself to the utmost in me or slay me. 
Did you pray a prayer like that? Could, could you? Have you ever prayed anything like that? God, either glorify yourself in my life or God, kill me. Do away with me. That's not your average prayer, is it? How many prayed that last week? I think I prayed that one time in my life. And that was on a Saturday before I was getting ready to step up before our home church, mine and Becky's home church, Cub Creek Baptist Church in Wilkesboro, to announce to them that I felt God was calling me to preach, that God was calling me to ministry. And I so wanted it to be authentic, and I so wanted it not to be something that I had worked up in my mind, that I literally prayed on that Saturday, God, if I'm about to make a mistake, kill me before I get a chance to stand up at that church and tell them. Only time I've ever prayed it. But Jim Elliott was praying that. He wanted God to be glorified in his life to, to that degree. He had that kind of holy fear of God himself and, and all of God himself that, that drove him to take the gospel to the Alca tribe in Ecuador. Here's the third movement in Psalm 96. God desires the nations to worship him. I know we talked about praise, but... Verse 7 through 9 says this. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. We once again have in imperative tense. And has he told us, sing as a commandment. As he said, we're to bless his name. We're to tell the salvation of day to day. All those were commandments. All those were in the imperative tense. Here he uses this word ascribe through these verses, through this section of Psalm 96. In each instance in the imperative tense, God is saying, this is what you do. Not this is what you do if you kindly feel like you want to. He's saying, ascribe glory to me. That's what God is saying. God's ascribing glory to God isn't optional. Recognizing God's strength isn't optional. Offering worship to God isn't optional. Worshiping God's character, that's what it means when it talks about worshiping his name, is to worship his character. Worshiping God's character isn't optional. Seeing God as he is and prostrating yourself before him is really an expected response. And the reason I say that, and Henry Blackaby pointed this out in, in his Bible study years of God about experiencing God, but he more or less said this, every time God spoke, people knew who he was, and they instantly did what? Bowed down. When they understood it was God, and they recognized the holiness and the authority of God, that they bowed down. So, so our response to God is expected in that way for us to recognize how great he is and for us to prostrate ourselves before him and worship him because of his splendor and because of his holiness. We're to tremble before him. We're to worship him. He calls upon all the earth to do that. He, he desires all the nations, all the families, all the peoples of the earth to worship him. Warren Wiersbe said this one time talking about worship. He said praise is looking up. Worship is bowing down. But I submit to you, he meant more than just the physical effort of bowing down. Because when we bow down, what we're really doing is bowing our will to his will. <laughs> our purpose to his purpose. And that's what worship ought to, to, to be about in, in, in our lives. Jim Elliott once wrote this. Forgive me for being so ordinary while claiming to know so extraordinary a God. You ever wonder why the world's not convinced of the gospel? Do you ever wonder why the world doesn't set up and take notice? Maybe it's because we put more energy in going to a football game than we do praising Him and worship. People will go to a football game or their favorite sport and they will throw their hands up in there and not care what anybody thinks about them, pull their shirts open, have the colors of their team on their chest with their fat bellies walling around. For all the world to see, 
I think John's done that before. He didn't do it when I was at the Panthers game with him, but that'd been the only entertaining thing at the Panthers this year, by the way. But guys, think about that. We, we serve an extraordinary God, don't we? How dare us look ordinary? How dare us be unconvincing to a world? How dare us not worship God in, in, in a way that, that gains the attention of people? Such was the awareness when Jim Elliott and those other four missionaries went to Ecuador to that known dangerous tribe. They flew a small airplane into the jungle and over their village. They drop out some leaflets. At one point in time, they flew over and they had long rope with buckets. And in the buckets, they had, had leaflets in the tribal language of the Alcas. They had gifts in the buckets and they, they would drop them out. One, one day, a man from the village, a young tribal man from the village came and he wanted to fly in the plane. So they put him in the plane and they're flying over the village and he's uh, waving out to the rest of the villagers. They took a risk to go into a jungle and make contact with this dangerous tribe. One day, January the 8th, 1956, Elliot and four other missionaries that were with him, I read their names earlier, they were waiting by a river. They were calling out with a loudspeaker messages into the jungle in the native tongue of the Aucas tribe waiting for somebody to come out and talk to him. Eventually, a lady and a young lady and a man showed up. And they began to talk a little bit and, and uh, have an interchange with them. The older lady decided to stay a little bit longer. The, the young man and the young lady left. Here's the problem. You didn't do that in that tribe. The older lady that stayed was... Their chaperone, more or less. On the way back to the village, the young man and the young lady, they, they meet some of the tribe. And her dad, the young lady's dad, happened to be part of the tribe. And he gets upset and angry and asks them, why are you out here by yourself? Isn't it strange how the same things happen in all cultures? And they lied to her dad. And they said, those missionaries abused us and chased us off. So 10 men from the village went and grabbed spears and came back to where Jim Elliott and the other four missionaries were, and they speared them all to death there beside the river. Days later, Jim Elliott's body was found downstream where he had washed downstream. They were there just trying to share the gospel, trying to, to, to reach these people, trying to, to rescue these, these people. You see, here's a little bit more background. I'm going to play you a video in a few minutes that will repeat some of this, but, but here's a little bit more background. You might be asking yourself, why in the world leave America? Why go to a tribe that's already known to murder people? Why take that risk? Why fly a plane into the jungle? Why do any of that? Because Jim Elliott and those missionaries saw the lostness of those people. And they knew that those people, God wanted them just as much as he wants you and me. They also had found this out. Shell Oil Company was trying to drill for oil in Ecuador. And they're trying to drill for oil in territory that belonged to the Aucas tribe. And every time they would come in, Shell would come in and try and drill. The Aucas would attack them and kill the people from Shell oil. Shell Oil contacted the Ecuadorian government and said, if you want us to help make your country prosperous and us be able to dig for wells, we need to wipe out the Aucas tribe. Jim Elliott and the other missionaries found out about that. So before that could happen, they thought, let's try and get them to Jesus first. <laughs> Let, let's try and take the gospel to them first before they lose their lives and their souls for all eternity. Movement number four is found in verse 10 through 13. 
God desires the nations to enjoy him, I think is the theme of these verses. Verse 10 says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the earth exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He'll judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. John Piper once said this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's what the text is about. Those verses are about. We're told there to rejoice, to be glad, to to, to roar, to exult, to, to sing for joy. And we're to enjoy the Lord because of two main capacities that's found in those verses. First of all, we should enjoy God as the sovereign king. It talked about God being upon his throne, God reigning upon his throne. And God, as he reigns upon his throne, all the subject of his creation including us within the earth, including the sea and everything that's in it, the field and everything that's in it, the trees and and all. He he said, let all my creation rejoice before me. It's like God upon his throne has given an invitation to all of his creation, to all of his subjects, that, hey, I want you to come to me and I want you to enjoy me. I want you to be in a relationship with me. I I want you to to exalt me is, is the point of what is being said there. It's a grand invitation. He calls upon the heavens to be glad, the earth to rejoice. That includes us, the sea and all that's in it, to roar, the the fields, everything in them to exalt, the trees to sing joy. Why, Why does he say that? Well, he told us the answer, because the Lord comes. At the time the psalmist wrote that, it was future tense. For us, it's past tense, because the Lord has came, Amen. The Lord came in as, as Jesus in the flesh. God came into the world as that baby in the flesh. And he lived that sinless life. And he went to the cross. And he fully paid for our sins. And it's only through faith in him that we can have everlasting life. He is a sovereign king. He's the ruler of all the universe. And we're invited to enjoy him through faith in his son. Because the Lord has come. And you might can understand. Yeah, I ought to enjoy God because of that. The second capacity tells us that we ought to enjoy God because he's the righteous judge. (laughs) He'll judge the peoples with equity. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Now, it might be easy for you to make the connection and say, okay, God is king, he's on his throne, and he invites me to come enjoy him. He invites me to rejoice in him. But how in the world am I supposed to enjoy God as a righteous judge? Here's how. Since God is a righteous judge, everything he ever says, everything he ever does, every judgment he ever makes will always be what? Right. Have you guys been as frustrated as I have been with our politicians? It, it's, it's like it, there's no truth anywhere. No, no, standing for something being right. Guys, I'm telling you, that will never happen with God. His decisions will always be correct and always be right. And that's how we can enjoy God as a judge because we understand up front, he will not be partial to people. He will not play politics. He'll always be the righteous judge. And whether we like it or not, the judgments he gives out, no one will ever be able to point at God, point in his face, and say, you did wrong. You were unfair. No one will ever do that because every judgment that God gives will always be correct. Even when it blows our mind that that, that God's judgment, God's response to a situation could be like this. Hi, I'm Steve Saint. Sixty years ago, right now, God began writing a story that 
deeply, deeply impacted my life, as well as that of four other families and hundreds of thousands of people around the world. You know, Psalm 145.4 says about God's stories, generation after generation stands in awe of your work. Each one tells stories of your mighty acts. The story that God started writing 60 years ago was a story about my dad, Nate Saint, and four of his friends, Jim Elliott, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, and Ed McCulley, had decided to try to make contact with a really violent tribe of Indians living down in the Ecuadorian Amazon. These people had been harassed by the Shell Oil Company and had been killing oil company employees trying to keep those employees from entering into their territory. The Shell Oil Company had gone to the Ecuadorian government and convinced them that if they wanted the Shell Oil Company to find oil, that together they had to get rid of this problem. So Dad and his friends decided to try to make a contact, a friendly contact, before efforts were made to try to wipe this small tribe of violent people um, out. In the process, Dad and his friends were killed, but that's only the beginning of the story. A few years ago, I was traveling with a man that we call Grandfather Minkai, one of the members of the tribe that killed Dad and his friends. And uh, while we were traveling and speaking with uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, a, a contemporary Christian musician, uh, journalist from USA Today gave me a call and said, uh, you know, I'd like to interview you. But then he said, but first I want to ask you some questions. A USA Today editor, when he was interviewing us, said, you know, I can understand possibly forgiving the man who killed your father. But he said, but loving him, that seems almost morbid. And you know, it would be if it wasn't true. But the answer to why and how something like this can happen is really very simple. It's God's grace and the power of his word. You know, my dad and his four friends were willing to die rather than to kill the Waurani. Uh, when they were attacked, they all had guns and the Waurani had spears. Um, so I figured as a little boy, well, my dad must have loved the Waurani. And then after dad was killed, every night when we'd meet for family devotions, my mom would pray for those people that had just brutally killed my dad and ruined my life. And then a couple of years later, mom told me that my Aunt Rachel, who was like a second mother, my dad's sister, and uh, Aunt Betty, who wasn't really my blood relation, um, but called her Aunt Betty anyway, Aunt Betty Elliot, that the two of them were going to go in and try to live with the same people that had just killed Dad and Roger and Pete and Ed and Jim. And I thought, what a dumb thing to do. They'll just kill Aunt Rachel and Aunt Betty too. But Aunt Rachel and Aunt Betty went in and they weren't killed. But I knew that Aunt Rachel loved those people enough that she was willing to die for them. But by the time I met them a couple of years later, I was convinced that these were the most special people on earth. I mean, why would my dad and his friends be willing to risk their lives and then not try to defend themselves when they were attacked? Why would my mom go on praying for them? And why would Aunt Rachel be willing to risk her life unless these were really, really special people? You know, I thought as our conversation, my conversation with the uh, journalist was winding down, I thought, you know, there's an old saying, hurt people hurt people. Well, maybe it's also true that forgiven people learn to forgive people. Um, there's, a, there's a verse in 2 Corinthians that I, I thought of too. And it made me feel bad because that journalist really wanted to know if this man that, that I was traveling with and, and rooming with and that I loved was the same man who had killed my dad and his four friends. And I had said yes, but I had misled him. Uh, oh, he looked like the same man, and he had the same general personality, but he wasn't the same man. Let me explain. 
It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, it starts out this way, if anyone is in Christ, or our young people might say into Christ, if, if anyone is into Christ, he is a new creature. Instead of going back and finishing the verses in regular English, let me try it. I'm going to read it to you in Hawaiian Pidgin, a language which you'll understand, although you probably have never read it. In Hawaiian Pidgin, 2 Corinthians 5:17 through 20 says, That's why whoever stay tight with Christ, they one new kind of guy. This is a real language. The old things no stay no more. Look, the new things when come. All that stuff, it come from God. He went bring us back the same side with him because of what Christ went do. And now he tell us for work so the other people can come back together with him too. That's our objective. If you're a Christ follower, that is our commission from Christ. We were brought back the same side with God after we had strayed. And now our objective should be to try to bring other people back the same side with Christ. Oh, I don't mean forcibly, but to share the good news, the gospel with them, so that they have a choice to live peaceably with God. Grandfather Minkai has told me a number of times, and others of the men who killed Dad uh, and Roger and Pete and Ed and Jim, after they became Christ followers, and, and don't get me wrong, not the whole tribe became Christ followers, but when those people who did became Christ followers, they actually began teaching me, when I was living with Aunt Rachel, how to become a Christ follower. It really is true. If anyone is in Christ, they become a new kind of guy. Guys, to, to me, that's one of the most amazing stories of forgiveness and grace that you could ever hear. Where the family who had lost their loved ones, those missionaries to die, that was Stephen Saint, the son of Nate Saint. And, and for his aunt, and his mom also went, and he went. And Elizabeth, Jim's wife, went. To go and try and reach the people that had murdered your family members. Think about how much forgiveness and grace it takes for that. And the story of the forgiveness and grace in the life of that tribe. Of those, the ones who did come to, to faith in Christ. The man you saw in the video, Mikai, once he came to faith in Christ, he became a preacher and an elder in the Hua church in the village. He adopted Stephen Saint as his grandson. Because he thought it was his obligation to do so since he had murdered Stephen's dad. He helped disciple Stephen. Helped lead him to faith in Christ. And helped disciple him. And then, that tribesman who murdered Stephen's dad baptized Stephen in a river in that village. Later on, Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song entitled No Greater Love based upon this story of Jim Elliott and these missionaries. That's why they were on tour with Stephen Curtis Chapman. In the original song, not in the version John's going to do, but the original song, at the end of the song, it had Minkai in his native tongue chanting, there's no greater love. Not only were they on the stage with Stephen Curtis Chapman on tour, they were on stage with Billy Graham telling their story. 
God used the life and the death of Jim Elliot and those missionaries to glorify himself all across the world. The question this morning is this, do you know him? Because as Stephen read in the video, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, that tribesman who had been a murderer, (laughs) did you get the point that he was making? I told the news reporter, yes, that's the one, but I kind of misled him because it's not really the one. He kind of looks like him, has some mannerisms, but he's not the same. Why? Because he's a new creature in Christ. So whoever you are and whatever you've done, you might be convinced by the world or the devil or whoever else that you've been too bad, you've done too much. You ever stabbed anybody to death with a spear? We'll talk afterwards. (laughs) I'm telling you, no matter who you are and what you've done, if you trust Christ as your Savior, He makes you a new creature, You become a new creation, and all the old is gone. All things become new. And if you already know that, there are tons and tons of people that don't. People we rub shoulders with every day. And God wants them to worship Him. God wants them to praise Him. God wants them to stand in awe of Him. God wants them to have a relationship with Him. And as I said at the outset of the message, the beginning of the message, when you hear a story like this, doesn't it make you ask yourself, what have I done for Jesus? Doesn't it make you ask yourself that? Stand and listen to this song. If God speaks to you about trusting Christ as Savior, please come. If God speaks to you about coming and kneeling and praying for a lost person, a lost family member, whatever, please come. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church. Experience a new day in your life.